0: I'm just amazed at what God has created and I take my camera out with me um, just to capture some of these things that God has created and just look at that sunset isn't that just amazing I've got a heart for the lost and for mission and um, there are many in this many people in this city that just don't know Jesus I partnered there with Craig and Sydney Bible Forum we do several projects together where we reach out um, the workers within Adelaide. I um, I lead a, a group, a young entrepreneurs group in the city, uh, and I mentor them, they own their own businesses, and I'm in business myself as well. They're Christians, and so we just go through the struggles of business, but we also go through the struggles of faith together. In July, 15 of us are traveling over to Europe, uh, to UK. We're gonna to go to Oxford College, and we're going into Rabbi Zacharias' summer school, and just doing, a 10-day boot camp on apologetics, which is defense of the gospel. And I'm hoping that will deepen my face. I like to keep fit. Um, I've got such an urgency to like There's so much to be done, particularly for God's work. I can't do that if I'm not healthy. So the things that I can control, nutrition and fitness, you know, I put some effort in in those things. And rowing, you know, it's just something new that I've tried. I'm cycling a lot as well, uh, all the usual gym stuff and things like that as well. My mentor there, Ken, um, you know, I've got this heart for mission, but I'm, a, I'm highly allergic to higher education. I did four years of uni and I'm still doing first year subjects. I just, essays, all that sort of stuff's just not for me. I'm an intelligent person, but I just don't like. But Ken really encouraged me and shaped me, and, this, and I'm in my first year of Bible college, and a lot of that's been through the effort of Ken. And I'm there not because I want uh, a vocation ministry but I'm there because I want to deepen and strengthen my relationship with God and I want to be prepared and ready if a call comes. I don't want to be scrambling in the last minute. Uh, and I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an entrepreneur for God. I like to do experiments, I like to do things that are different. And on Christmas Day, I um, pulled together a little bit of a Christmas Day experiment. So. Uh, there's some other evangelists around the city that have a heart for the lost. So we got together, we, uh, we hired out the State Library on Christmas Day, um, the ground floor, and opened up the cafe that was there. And we sent an invite out into the city saying, if, you're not he- if you've got nothing to do on Christmas Day, um, if you're at a loose end, come and have lunch with us, connect with us. It was an unashamedly um, Christian event, And it was targeted at non-Christians, the way it was marketed, was just come, uh, you're traveling, you might have just been recently moved here, or your family's um, away, come and connect with us. And so we did that, and for me, that was actually a a really hard thing to do. Um, If it was a social, let's get together sort of thing, um, that's an easy thing to market, but to market a Christian event, um, you know, come along, there there was a Christmas message there We set up a band, I play keys, um, and I'm not a very good vocalist, but I was singing on the day. We played carols throughout the lunchtime, uh, just to set a sort of a a genuine and authentic Christmas mood. And we had 60 people turn up. I would have been happy with 10 or 15, um, but 60 people, it was only just put out on the internet. There was nothing really other than that. Um, And it was something that really grew me. because. The only way that those people could have come was because Christ convicted them to come. Uh, and I learned a lot from that. One guy came up afterwards and said, that's the first time I've heard this name Jesus. And he was surprised that there was another story on Christmas day other than Santa Claus. And that's really the work of Christ there. So I'll ask you again now, do you think you know me? Even if just a little bit. So there's something different in the way I shared between those two. There's a difference between knowing about someone and there's a difference between knowing someone. There's a deeper understanding when you know someone. When you know about someone, you just know facts and figures. It's the sort of stuff you would see in a Facebook feed. It's things that are going on. It's, um, It's events that might be happening in their life. But knowing someone just goes past the superficial. And you can't know someone unless you have an interaction with them. Uh, You can read all of that stuff about me, but you're not going to get my heart. You're not going to really understand um, the why, I guess, behind some of the things I do. And it's only because I'm here and sharing that and you're seeing my energy and you're seeing uh, my interaction that you can really understand and know me. And friends, there are heaps of people in the city that know about Jesus they don't know Jesus and there are heaps of people that just don't even know about Jesus and I'm going to share with you today um, given Easter is coming up and I've got a heart for missions and I've got a heart for the lost just going to share with you um, about an encounter with Jesus and something, I mean, I'm in first year Bible college, so the very first thing they teach you is everything's got to start with the same letter. So today is our E-Day. For Easter, I've only got two points in my message today as we go through John. Engaging with people for an encounter with Christ. People aren't going to know Jesus until they have that encounter with Jesus. So let's get into the Word together. Uh, I've got the... I'd actually encourage you to read through your Bibles, but I do have them up on the slide as well. So I really love that Montaz said, make sure he's saying the right thing, and if I'm saying something wrong, I'm happy if you put your hand up and say, hey, that's not right. Verse 3. So he left Judea, went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now he had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? There were two routes between Judea and Galilee. One was a short route, pretty much just straight, it's the green one. Um, It's a three day journey, but it's quite hilly, it's quite mountainous and it's a tiring route. That one's the route through Samaria. There was another way that went around to, to the east of River Jordan. That was a six day journey, but that was flat. You can see there the relative differences on those 3D maps. Was Jesus, did he have to go through Samaria because he was in a rush? Did he have an urgency? I don't think that was the reason. We'll see later on in verse 40 that he stayed in Samaria for two days. In Jesus' day, the Samaritans were disliked by the Jews, and disliked is putting it nicely. And it's really surprising that Jesus and his disciples would have been in Samaria the way that they were. Most Jews avoided Samaria and they would take the longer route. They would go all the way around um, to get between Judea, which is there at the bottom, and Galilee, which is there at the top. And the reason they avoided Samaria was because of their history. So, If you go to the next slide, after the death of Solomon, 975 BC, Israel split into two kingdoms, a north kingdom and a south kingdom. Uh, ten of the tribes were aligned with the north, two tribes in the south, and all the Levites were kind of between both. Um, but they split, and the North Kingdom, Israel, is what it was called. Its capital city was Samaria. And the Southern Kingdom, Judah, its capital city was Jerusalem. A couple of hundred years later, in 722 BC, so the next slide, the Northern Kingdom of Israel was overpowered by the Assyrian Empire. And they were almost wiped out. Any, um, any, any Israelites that were there in that northern kingdom were deported out. They were dispersed amongst the Assyrian Empire. And then the Assyrians took people from other tribes and brought them into that Israel location. And there it is in 2 Kings. You can have a look at yourself. Um, Kings talks about what happens between the split of the kingdoms and then the, um, the conquests that happen after that. As the the foreigners came into Israel, they brought their foreign gods, their foreign customs. uh, They intermarried with the the much depleted population that was there. And this hybrid um, group of people started to become what is known as the Samaritans. They developed their own alternate version of Judaism. It was corrupt in some ways and compromised. They still believed in the God of Israel But they worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, um, rather than in Jerusalem. They adapted the customs, they created their own means of worship practices. And so the Jews regarded the Samaritans as ignorant, superstitious, outside of God's favour and mercy. So why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because the Samaritans were still very much a part of God's purposes and plans. So let's read on and see how. Verse five: He came to a town in Samaria, Sychar, near a plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Um, verse seven: When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "Will you give me a drink?" His disciples had gone into food, gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The Jews do not associate with the Samaritans." Jesus knew he needed to have an encounter with a Samaritan woman at the well. And that's who we're introduced to, and we quickly learn that she was a social outcast. John tells us in verse 6 that it was noon. Um, she was there drawing water at that time, which is highly unusual. Women collected the daily household need of water early in the morning, and they did that often together. It was almost like a little social outing for them. This Samaritan woman went there at noon. She went there alone. And she went there when no one else was around. She was avoiding contact with others. And she would have been surprised to see Jesus there. No one would have been there at that time of day. And there are many reasons why Jesus and the Samaritan woman should not have had an encounter that day. Firstly, there was the racial tension that went on between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the norm was to avoid each other, we just spoke about that. And John puts it in his commentary, the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. He was putting that in there for the benefit of the non-Jews. The Jews knew that you don't associate. They put that in the benefit for those that didn't understand standard Jewish customs. Secondly, there's gender. Um, it says in verse 9, I'm a Samaritan woman. And she didn't just refer to herself as a Samaritan. She said, I'm a woman. It's stating the obvious, but culturally, Women were treated as second-class citizens in the first century. And a Jewish man had no business talking with a woman. The, um, the, in addition to the Bible, the Jews had uh, oral tradition where they would pass down teachings and these teachings were written. And this one I have put up there called Chapters of the Father is just part of the Jewish oral tradition. And this is something that in Jesus' day, it's what it said about women, do not talk much with women. He who talks too much brings evil upon himself. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty hard stuff, right? And guys, we know women are much smarter than us, so, you know, what would the guys have been missing out on? Uh, That's not in the Bible, (laughs) just so you know, but that's just part of the custom. This is what was going on in the day. There was position and rank. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, a learned person. She was a social outcast. There was no need for them to be associating and there was a physical element as well in verse eight sorry verse six it says that jesus was tired he was well within his rights to just withdraw and recharge all of these things jesus rose above they're all man-made barriers and friends it's important that we understand that man-made barriers prevent us from engaging with people Do we take the long way around to avoid someone? Do we cross the proverbial street on our journey? Do we subconsciously draw upon relative differences between us and others? Do we close the shutters and say, I'm too tired, I don't feel like it? Are man-made barriers preventing us from engaging with people who need an encounter with Christ? I spoke earlier about my heart for mission, and for the longest time, I was convinced that I simply did not have the personality for it. Deep down, if you actually really, really, really know me, I'm quite a shy person and I'm deeply introverted. And for most of my adult life, I avoided people. For missions work, it involves people. Um, I could have ignored the call of my heart and pointed to my sheltered upbringing and come up with throwing my hands up in the air and saying, this is all too awkward. But missions work, it involves people. And I had a barrier that I had to overcome. Surrendered to the call that was on my heart for missions work. And I took a strategic look at my weaknesses and said, I need to do something about this. And I trusted God to do the rest because he can transform people and hearts. <coughs> Many years ago, when I moved to Adelaide, I, um, I bought into a cafe in the city and I said to myself, "You can't talk to people about God if you can't talk to people." So every day, as hundreds of new faces shuffled through the cafe, I would use that as an opportunity to just start talking to people, to grow myself. What did I have to lose? Now, um, you know, there's, if you had to watch those first couple of months, they were very awkward conversations, a lot of silence, and some of them might have been even meme-worthy. But you put yourself out there enough, and you can overcome these things. Um, And, you know, I learned how to interact and how to chat with people and it's actually a really enjoyable thing and I don't know why I was so worried about it all my life. Missions work involves people. And there are barriers that prevent us from engaging with people. And we can see Jesus didn't let such things get in the way. The Samaritans were rejected by the Jewish people, but Jesus was not offended by them. There's another passage in John 8, it'll be on the screen, where it says, The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Jesus responded, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honour my father, and you dishonour me. Jesus here is being accused of two things, being a Samaritan and being demon-possessed. How does Jesus respond? He responds to the demon-possessed thing. He didn't take offence to the Samaritan point. He didn't feel that that needed to be addressed. It wasn't an offence to him. And he didn't allow in this instance, Samaria to be a barrier. This woman was rejected by her own people. She was unclean. She would have been considered ceremoniously unclean. So for him to say, can I have a drink? Jesus would have become unclean as a result of sharing the same vessel. But Jesus still reached out to her. And although a woman We see time and time again that Jesus had a positive attitude about women and he went past the cultural norms. He didn't limit a woman's identity to the physical, but he engaged with them with uprightness and with respect. Plus, they were just in an ordinary location. They weren't in a temple where someone was seeking anything. It was just people going around their their day-to-day duties and Jesus met this woman simply where she was at. He approaches the Samaritan woman, asking, will you give me a drink? Jesus was quite resourceful. I'm sure he could have figured out how to get his own drink. The disciples were off getting food. They would have been back shortly, and no doubt they would have had water with them. And this wasn't about being served by someone. We've seen in Mark chapter 10 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He had his priorities straight. We also see a bit later on in verse 31, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. His disciples said to each other, could someone have bought him food? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus had his priorities right. Food, drink, they were secondary concerns. His priority was doing God's work and he asked for a drink, not because he wanted a drink, to start a conversation because that's how you engage with people. We read on verse nine, Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew, I am Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water Jesus gave a spiritual answer. His reference, living water, was the Holy Spirit. In John 7, chapter 37, on the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit said, rivers of living water will flow within them. By this he meant the Spirit. Jesus gave a spiritual answer to this woman but spiritual blindness gets in the way of understanding. And we see that in the woman's reply in verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? When engaging in conversation with people, especially about spiritual matters, there's a tendency to only see the physical and to be blind to the spiritual. Have you ever had a conversation with someone about Jesus? Only to be asked, how did the dinosaurs get on the ark? This woman's answer was in the physical realm. Rain fell in Israel only a couple of months of the year. People survived on stagnant water that was either stored or drawn from a well. Living water referred to fresh water that was either from rain or from a flowing stream. That's why it was called living water. It was also in contrast to the sea and the Dead Sea, which might look refreshing, but was actually quite harmful and resulted in barrenness of the lands around them. She was thinking he was talking about this living water. In verse 13, Jesus addresses her physical concern and he gently guides her to what is important. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water, so I won't get thirsty and having to keep coming here to draw water. This woman, rejected by the Jewish people, rejected by her own people, rejected by five husbands, we'll read shortly, carrying shame around her every day of her life. This woman who came to the well alone in the middle of the night, sorry, middle of the day, she was weary. She was weary of having to come there day in, day out in the heat. She was weary of being an outcast and being rejected. And she exclaims, give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back here. Jesus engaged with this woman. Now she's ready for an encounter with Christ. And he's just made a statement. What this woman seeks won't be found in an earthly answer. Earthly solutions wear off. They're temporary, they're not permanent. Drinking this earthly water, it's just a short fix. You'll get thirsty again. He expands her world and he starts to show her who he is. She's about to meet who, about to learn about who Jesus is. The solutions found through Jesus, it's an eternal solution, but there's a barrier that's preventing her from being able to drink that water. Jesus needs to confront her of her sin and convict her of her sinfulness. We read in verse 16. He said, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. You are right when you, have, when you say you have no husband, Jesus said. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. She perceived well. Jesus was probing her moral life without shaming her. And this was designed to show that he knew everything about this woman. Before the gift of God that he spoke about in verse 10 could be received, the need for the gift had to be seen. In a few words, Jesus revealed her life of sin and her need for salvation. At this point, if anyone who's dealt with pastoral issues, I'm sure she would have been in tears or close to it she would have been feeling quite vulnerable. And how do people respond when they're vulnerable? They deflect. In verse 20, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. She quickly changes the topic to a theological debate. I've had conversations like that with people too. When it gets a little too close to comfort, they pull out the red herring or the point of controversy the correct response is not to argue or to get into debate, but to speak the truth and to focus in on Christ. Jesus' response to her is profound and insightful. And he clarifies how she believes the word worship that she uses. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipper the Father seeks. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Because of the history of Samaria and the intermixing of the faiths, the Samaritan religion was confused and in error. The Samaritans had rejected the Old Testament, except for the first five books, the Pentateuch. They accepted that a Messiah would come, but it wouldn't be from the line of David because they'd rejected those passages. They were looking for a Messiah that was like Moses and this Messiah would come from Samaria. And Jesus was pointing out salvation will come from the Jews. He didn't mean that all the Jews will be saved, but he was saying, salvation, this Messiah is going to come from someone who's Jewish. The time is coming and has now come. Jesus is saying the time is now. The gift of God is here. He's referring to his coming death, which will usher in this new era of worship that he speaks about. The physical location of this worship won't matter. No place is going to be any holier than any other. And God's not going to be confined. How one worships is going to be a lot more important than where one worships. There's going to be a new kind of worship, one that's a lot closer than any other worship. It's the worship that God seeks, and he's talking about an attitude of the heart based on religious practice true worshippers will realize that the truth that Jesus is the one and only way and it's the only way to God and true worshipers will be in relationship with Jesus we read in John 14 21 whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me the one who loves me will be loved by my father And I too will love them and show myself to them. Friends, you can know a lot of things about Jesus, but to really know Jesus is to have a relationship with him, to love him and to have him love you. Genuine worship, the worship that God seeks, is only possible when there is this relationship. And Jesus is about to reveal exactly who he is. To this woman there in verse 25 the woman said I know the Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes he will explain everything to us and Jesus declared I am the one speaking to you I am he Jesus declared he is the Messiah the Samaritans weren't looking for a conquering Messiah from the line of David as the Jews were they were looking for a prophet like Moses. So Jesus could freely reveal this to her without worrying about misunderstandings or getting into political debates and all that sort of stuff. As has happened in Judah and over there, he typically called himself the son of man. Last week at church, I heard a testimony from a new Christian. Um, Somehow through her academic studies, she was doing a subject that was a theological subject about Jesus, Um, I'm not not sure how that came to be, but sometime later, when a friend um, engaged with her and spoke to her about Jesus, she came to have an encounter with Jesus and she learned that Jesus was real. And when she was giving her testimony, she was getting visibly upset. She was saying, why didn't they teach us at uni that Jesus was real? She knew a lot about Jesus she needed an encounter with Jesus to know him. And you can see in this interaction with the Samaritan woman, she's intelligent. And she's clearly religious, but her lifestyle was showing that she was spiritually blind. And in the same way that the Samaritan knew about the Messiah, she didn't know the Messiah, but she has now come to know the Messiah. Jesus made no moral judgments on her. He invited her to concentrate on what was the most important aspects, bringing her to an experience of faith and transforming her into a messenger. Once the woman recognised Jesus as the Messiah, what did she do? She ran to tell others. It was an amazing and a remarkable experience for her. She didn't keep it to herself. We read in 28, Leaving her water jar, she ran back to the town and, went and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. She left her jar there. She was no longer consumed about these discussions about waters and wells and rivers and things like that. They were all earthly things now. She ran into town where she engaged with others. This is the same woman who went to the well to avoid people. She went there at noon. But she put aside all the barriers that she had. They were meaningless to her now. The racial barriers, that was still there. How could she go saying to the Samaritans, there's a Messiah here and he happens to be a Jew? The gender barriers, she would have been seen as an unlikely messenger for such great news. The cultural barriers, they would have seen, labelled her and seen her as unclean. But she put those aside. She ran into town shouting, see a man who told me everything I did. And in her heart, I'm sure she was saying, and he still loves me. The result of her testimony, a citywide revival. They not only took her at her word, They followed her back to the well we see in verse 39 many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of her testimony and then a bit later on they said to the woman we no longer believe just because of what you said now we have heard ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world woman told the others what she had seen and heard and because of her testimony they accepted that Jesus was Christ but they weren't able to know jesus they knew about him now they had to come and see him firsthand to know jesus they came to the well to have their encounter with jesus friends my encouragement for you is to engage with people for an encounter with christ how are they going to know Jesus, until someone first tells them. Put aside barriers. The message of Jesus is just too great. It's amazing. It's life-transforming. Jesus broke through one final barrier for us ever since the fall in Genesis 3 when sin entered the world. Humanity hasn't had an effective relationship with God. Jesus changed all that by dying at the cross for the sins of the world, he bridged the gap that was there between us and God, allowing a suspended eternity with God. Jesus wants us to have a deep and personal relationship. And the only way is to trust in him and to believe in him and to have an encounter with him. I know you've been looking at Galatians, and I think, it's, I think your, your tagline is set free to live. And this woman who daily lived a life of rejection and shame had her life drastically changed by Jesus, carried her shame to the cross. Sin and shame, those things still exist today. And the good news is that just as Christ saved her, he's saving us as well. And in closing, before I pray, I'd just like us to just take a moment in our seats in personal prayer. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm happy for you to just sit there for a minute or so. But if you would like to have an encounter with Christ, then use this moment just to say, I want to get to know you, Jesus. Reveal yourself to me. He already knows everything about you and would love to have a relationship with you. But if you are a believer, Psalm 96 asks two things of us, to rejoice and praise day after day, to declare his glory to all the nations. If you're a believer today and you're strong on the rejoicing bit, but could be stronger on the declaring bit, then I encourage you to just ask Jesus for help on that. To provide you with the opportunities to engage with people so that they can have an encounter with christ so let's just pray for a moment